Good morning, church. I'm really delighted to be back in Beaumont with everybody today. I'm very thankful for Brent Shakespeare twisting my arm a little bit and all. Uh, Glad my boys, uh, Eli and Ben, are with me somewhere, I think. Can't see them. Uh, By faith, I think they're here somewhere. It's been my, my privilege to serve as Director of Public Affairs and Religious Liberty here in the Pacific Union for 17 years now. And, you know, when I first sensed a call to religious liberty work, didn't know much about what it was. And I suspect that many of you, if you've heard of a religious liberty department, you may not know too much about what it is or what we do either. So I just want to take just a minute. Oh, there, there they are. Uh, got to adjust my glasses. Hey, guys. <clears throat> and, and also, greetings. Uh, delighted to see uh, Tim and Joan and George. I haven't seen you guys in a while. <clears throat> um, first of all, we spend an awful lot of time helping our members work out Sabbath problems at work. And so I want to make it clear to all, I, every church I go to, there are people who are working on Sabbath. And you may know some of them here in your church. Maybe they don't feel convicted about it. Maybe they, would, uh, they don't see how they can get out of it. Uh, I don't like to put guilt trips on anybody, but I do like to let people know that we're here to help and that we have had a pretty good track record at helping people get accommodations, get their schedules adjusted so they don't have to work on Sabbath. And we're prepared to, you know, to get your back if for those who do lose their jobs. And there's a wonderful story in, in the offering uh, brochure about a case that, uh, that the church represented one of our members. But beyond just helping our members with, with Sabbath problems, we monitor legislation in the five states of the uh, Pacific Union, California being kind of dominating over all, all of the rest. Uh, John, when, you know, when your brother David was in the Hawaii conference, there he is, uh, he was helping us with uh, keeping an eye on legislation there. And when he was in the legislature, we worked with, with David closely for many years on legislation there. We're trying to pass religious freedom legislation, but uh, the Democrats weren't too interested in, uh, in Hawaii. They weren't too interested here in California either, for that matter. Um, I, but I, in, in, in nonpartisan fairness, I have to say the Republicans haven't been much uh, more help to us in Congress as we have tried to pass religious uh, freedom legislation there. So I don't mean to, to beat up on any, any particular party. Um, we also deal with important cases in the courts, in the California courts, the Supreme Court of the United States, and we're going to talk about some of those cases this afternoon. We don't have time in our sermon to talk about too many, uh, but um, uh, we will mention a couple. I'd just like to um, have a word of prayer before the sermon, and I think it would be appropriate, unless we feel like... um, we're a world unto ourselves, it would be appropriate for us maybe to have a moment of silence before I pray and remember the family of, of Judge John Roll uh, and uh, also 
remember uh, Honorable uh, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, and, uh, and let's pray for her recovery as well. Father, it's our privilege and our pleasure to, to gather for worship here on your holy day and to remember uh, an esteemed member of, of our nation who died so tragically this past Sabbath and to pray for his family, to pray for the family of, of Gabrielle Giffords and to pray for her speedy recovery, Lord. And as we worship today, we want to hear your voice, not mine. You alone can inspire and bless us, Lord. So I commit my heart, my words, my thoughts to you. And Lord, speak to us. Inspire us. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the title of my sermon today is Frogs in the Kettle. Frogs in the kettle. There are frogs in the Bible, and we'll, we'll get to talking about frogs in just a few minutes. <clears throat> uh, maybe you've heard, there's been a lot of discussion among church leaders. Uh, our newly elected General Conference President, uh, Ted Wilson, our uh, North American Division President, Dan Jackson, have really been emphasizing uh, a call for revival and reformation within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it's a very welcome and needed call for revival, isn't it? But I'm here to tell you this morning that revival and religious liberty are inseparable. Revival and religious liberty in the Adventist tradition and context and experience are inseparable. Why do I say that? Given our prophetic insight, our prophetic mission, our prophetic message, we can't fully experience revival without a recovery of the religious liberty emphasis of the three angels' messages. So let's just have a little bit of a review of these three messages. The first angel, fear God, Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. It's a call to revival. It's a call to worship the creator in the hour of his judgment. It is a message to the world about the source of true freedom, which can only be found in relationship to Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ is the source of freedom from everything that binds us here on earth, isn't it? And so it is given to us. We are to be the angel proclaiming freedom to the captives, to all the world, in preparation for the coming of Christ. Amen? Hello! That was a pretty lame amen, folks. All right, maybe i got to get a little uh, roused up and get you a little more awake. I don't know. We are to proclaim freedom to the captives, freedom in Christ to all the world in preparation for His second coming. Amen? Amen. Now, for a minute, I, didn't, I thought I was in a black church, not a white church. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Now, the second angel proclaims the fall of Babylon. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations do something, drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, a symbol of the church gone bad, corrupt, in an immoral, intimate relationship with the nations, with the kings of the earth, with the political powers of the earth, this uh, relationship, this union between church and state described as fornication, an intimacy that is immoral, that should not be. And so the second angel shows us how liberty dies. Liberty dies when church and state unite. And so it is given to us to be the angel to warn the world about the loss of liberty, the impending destruction of human freedom at the hands of a united church and state. Amen? Amen. And then the third angel warns us about what happens when liberty dies. The wrath of God is poured out without mixture. I wouldn't really want to um, drink The wrath of God, I don't care how diluted it is. I don't want to go anywhere near it. But without mixture, we see that message repeated in Revelation 18 and we see the consequences when God's wrath is finally unleashed in judgment upon the earth and civilization as we know it comes to a crashing halt. Now our church was raised up to prepare for the coming of Christ by giving these messages of both hope and warning. Hope because Christ died for everyone. Everyone. For you. There is no one within the sound of my voice for whom Christ did not die. He died for you. He died for everyone. There are some people that we don't like. Christ died for them. There are some people we want to judge and condemn. Christ died for them. They are our brothers and sisters too. Christ died for everyone and everyone has the opportunity to find in Christ the source of true peace, true freedom, and the meaning and purpose of their lives. So if there is to be a revival in the church, it has to be accompanied by a genuine understanding and appreciation of these three messages and a renewed commitment to proclaiming them. Now, I don't think it's an accident of history that in 1888, a spiritual revival was marked in this church by the powerful preaching combining both an emphasis on righteousness by faith and a very detailed, in-depth discussion of the religious liberty challenges of the day. And if you don't know that history, uh, it's been documented and published There are general conference bulletins from the period, uh, not so much 1888, but similar messages in 1893 and 1895. Very well worth going back and reading. And they're representative of how religious liberty and righteousness by faith were preached together and how powerful it was. And Ellen White had much to say in, in promoting that work. Seventh-day Adventists, whether we're liberal or conservative, 
need to be reminded that our hope is not found in ourselves. We're not saved by our own faith, by our own works, by our own performance. You know what the scripture says? All our righteousness is what? Do you think it's fair to substitute the word performance there? All of our performance is... So, you know, within Adventism you have this divide. You've got some conservatives who set the the standard of performance very high, and unless we achieve a high level of moral perfection, we're not going to be saved. And then you have liberals who reject that, and they set the standard of performance very low at a minimal level and say, you know, we're all sinners and we can't help ourselves. Well, it doesn't really matter whether you set that standard so high or you set it so low. Our salvation is not found in ourselves, is it? There is only one source of righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if we're looking at our own performance for confidence of our salvation, we're looking in the wrong place. And I don't care whether you're patting yourself on the back because you feel pretty good about your performance, or I don't care if you're suffering under a huge burden of guilt. The Lord has come to relieve us both of our guilt and of our self-righteousness and to bow at the foot of the cross and find in Jesus Christ the only source of righteousness. And, moreover, we're tempted to think that righteousness comes by our own faith. But even our faith is a gift. And it isn't really our own. On a good day, you may feel like you have a pretty strong faith and you may feel pretty secure in your salvation. On a bad day, you may feel a bit shaky and wonder whether you can be saved. At the end of the three angels' messages, there is a description of those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It doesn't say they keep their own faith in Jesus and those who rely on some modern translations are theologically misguided. In the Greek, it is not faith in Jesus. It's not our faith in Christ that saves us. It's the faith that Jesus had that took him through Gethsemane, that took him through Calvary. And he gives us his faith. So I don't care what this world throws at you today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. I don't care how, when you look inside yourself, how shaky you may feel your faith to be. You don't have to worry about the, the, the status of your own faith because it's not your faith that saves you, brothers and sisters. Jesus has given you his faith. Now that's what it means to have righteousness by faith. It's his righteousness and it's his faith and it is yours and mine today. Amen? Amen. So what's this about frogs anyway? It's time to talk about frogs. Frogs are a 
Frogs are kind of a cute creature. They don't really seem to be too dangerous. When in our passage there was a reference to a dragon, you know, dragon's kind of a scary, uh, uh, powerful and destructive creature. But you know, frogs are kind of innocent. You know, a little slimy maybe, but kind of cute. They're only mentioned really in two places in the Bible. We have that famous passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. In the context of the last plagues, the sixth angel, the one about the battle of Armageddon, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For there are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, known as the Battle of Armageddon. Now, why on earth does the Bible compare these three unclean spirits to frogs? Frogs? Demons? Frogs? Well, there's only one other place in the Bible that mentions frogs. You know where it is, don't you? The book of Exodus. In the plagues in Egypt. Three times... Moses and his brother Aaron worked miracles to demonstrate the power of God to Pharaoh. And three times the Egyptian sorcerers counterfeited the miracles, working powerful deception. The first time, Aaron threw down his rod, became a serpent. The Egyptian sorcerers did the same. Oh, but then Aaron's rod ate the rods of the sorcerers. Snap! But Pharaoh's rod, I'm sorry, Pharaoh was unconvinced. Then Moses announced the first plague. All the waters would be turned to blood. The sorcerers did the same thing, turned the water to blood. Then came the second plague. Frogs throughout the land. Frogs in the chariots. Frogs in the (coughs) kitchen. Frogs in the bedroom. Roll over at night and squish some frogs. Yuck. But the sorcerers did the same thing. God permitted the sorcerers to go so far. But that was the final deception that God permitted of the sorcerers. The next plague, the sorcerers were not permitted to counterfeit the plague of lice. And even then, even the sorcerers proclaimed that this was surely the hand of God. Do you see? We have ten plagues in Egypt. We have seven last plagues in the book of Revelation. And the frogs represent the final deception that God permits. And we have in this passage... Three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of a false, a counterfeit trinity. The powers of earth represented as the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. A final counterfeit. 
claiming the worship of all the world and enforcing the death penalty on those who refuse to worship the beast and its image and to receive its mark. So why frogs in the kettle? That's the title of my sermon, Frogs in the Kettle. Well, you know the old saying about if you take a bucket of frogs and you pour it into a kettle of boiling water, what will the frogs do? They'll realize that the water is too hot and they'll jump out. But if you put a bucket of frogs in a kettle of cold water and you turn up the heat, well, the frogs like water. They'll start swimming around and before they know it, they're cooked. Our liberties, friends, our liberties are like frogs in the kettle. They've been poured into a bucket of cold water and the heat's been turned up and we are losing our liberties slowly and steadily. But because it is so a steady erosion of freedom, I dare say we scarcely realize what's happening. And so we remain spiritually asleep to the seriousness of the times. All the while, our freedoms are being destroyed. And so long as we're not attentive to the loss of our freedoms, maybe we remain blissfully asleep and no spiritual revival can possibly be complete. Now, at the same time, we have a tendency to expect that there will be some dramatic event to stir us up so that we'll finally arouse spiritually and finish the work of proclaiming the gospel to all the world for a witness. Well, folks, we're ten years past the dramatic events of 9-11. We've seen the fall of communism, Hurricane Katrina. If we're still slumbering on, don't blame God for failing to send sufficiently dramatic events. But you see, it may be that we're waiting for what we've been told will be the final rapid movements of prophecy. But by then, it will be too late. We need a revival of true godliness now. We need to faithfully prepare the world for the second coming of Christ now. We can't afford to wait till the very last minute. Or perhaps we think that we'll lose our liberties suddenly and that we can safely slumber on until our liberties are about gone. Do you forget your history, folks? If you think about what happened in Germany in the 1930s, the Jews didn't lose their freedoms all at once. There was a steady campaign of, of demonizing the Jews and a steady succession of laws incrementally removing freedoms step by step by step that took nearly a decade before any trains started coming to take them off to the camps. No, we're already losing our liberties, friends. We really do not live in a free society, but in a national security state. <clears throat> Let's take another look, if you turn in your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 13. 
the scripture that we read this morning. Then I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon. Protestants generally do understand that a beast in prophecy represents a nation. Seventh-day Adventists have figured out that this particular beast represents the United States and that America has two horns like a lamb in that we have a constitution that protects civil and religious freedom. Horns are symbols in the Bible of power. By separating power, these, we have two horns symbolizing a separation of power. And by separating power into the branches of government, we have federal, state, and local government. We have, you know, the president and Congress and, and an independent federal judiciary. Uh, by doing this, the effort is to preserve our liberties from oppression, both civil and religious freedom. And so by separating power and by adopting the Bill of Rights, we further seek to define and protect our liberties. Now, if there are some who haven't studied out these prophecies and, and are wondering why we, we think that this is the United States, I know that uh, the pastor and, and I'm sure there are elders and others in the church who, who can study that with you. We don't have time to get into those details today. But there's something peculiar about this prophecy that I think we've overlooked. The prophecy <clears throat> does not say that the beast had two horns like a lamb past tense and will speak as a dragon future tense. I've, uh, when I first noticed what I'm about to say, I started asking some folks who'd been in the church a long time, when does America speak as a dragon? Is that something still future? And the answer typically was, well, yeah, you know, we started out well with this nice, meek, mild system and, and our commitment to freedom and the loss of freedom and speaking as a dragon. That's future. But look at your Bible. What does it say? What tense is the word speak in when it says speak as a dragon? Is it in the future tense or is it in the past tense? It's in the past tense. Spoke as a dragon. Now the dragon is identified in Revelation 12 as the devil himself. So we don't need to have any confusion or question about the kind of character, if a nation is speaking as a dragon, it's playing the part of the devil. It's not a pretty sight. Now a nation speaks through its laws and its policies, through its actions. To speak as a dragon means to exercise power in ways that are destructive of human life and liberty. That's the, the core idea, I think. To speak as a dragon means to exercise power, and we do it in many ways, executive orders, acts of Congress, 
through the military, many ways that we exercise power, destructive of life and liberty. And so I have to ask you, has America spoken as a dragon in the past? It is not unpatriotic, and I have to say this disclaimer at the beginning of this discussion, brothers and sisters. It is not unpatriotic for us as Seventh-day Adventists living in America to take an honest look at American history and to be dedicated to the freedoms that our Constitution stands for. That does not make us unpatriotic to be realistic about how the destruction of human life and liberty in our treatment, for example, of African slaves represents speaking as a dragon, or how our treatment of Native Americans as as we spread the uh, jurisdiction of our government across this continent, how that was destructive of life and liberty. We, we have to be honest, don't we? Now, beginning in the 1940s and the 1950s, the United States government began experimenting with the use of psychedelic drugs as a means of extracting information from people, as a means of torture, to aid in interrogation. And with the help of scientists and psychologists, our military developed the most sophisticated and effective torture techniques known to humanity, and we began exporting these techniques to nations around the world. It was not until the... And and by the way, we did this under both Republican and Democratic administrations. So this is not a a partisan uh, discussion here. But it wasn't until the first decade of this century that our government began to enlist the aid of lawyers to make the claim that such conduct was lawful, was legal. And then we took, then these lawyers, instead of being uh, punished, prosecuted, incarcerated, one of them is serving on the Ninth Circuit United States Court of Appeals, uh, honored as, uh, as a federal judge, an appellate judge. Another one is an esteemed faculty member at the University of California, Berkeley. A token conservative, but remarkably uh, gets along very... Uh, I've talked to some of the faculty members there, good friends with the liberals. You know, Berkeley has a liberal rep- uh, reputation for being a very liberal school, and uh, he's a very welcome and valued member of the of the faculty there. What does this say about the character of our nation, brothers and sisters? That we made the the public claims that torturing people is a violation neither of the United States Constitution or the Geneva Conventions and that it was necessary and desirable to preserve national security. Now, there were voices, to be sure, uh, that dissented. And, and the ones that I thought were the most compelling came from American generals, from military leaders, who 
were very concerned that the use of torture would put our own soldiers at risk and that furthermore, in our experience, it did not produce reliable intelligence. It was not terribly effective. And as it turns out, as an example of such ineffectiveness, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind behind the September 11th bombings of the World Trade Center was subjected to waterboarding, which is a form of torture, 183 times in the month of March uh, 2003. Let's see, that's an average of about six times, well, 31. You have an average of about six times a day, every day for a month. Now, I dare say if it was such a reliable technique for obtaining information, it would not have required 183 administrations in a single month. Abu Zubaydah, another high-ranking al-Qaeda figure, was subjected to waterboarding 83 times. But remarkably, this was after he had already agreed to tell everything that he knew. Hence, the skepticism about whether these torture techniques really were intended to extract information. It's a tragedy that our nation, with our commitment to civil and religious freedom, has become known globally as the leading exporter uh, and mastermind of, of torture techniques, which nations around the world, nations like Chile and Argentina, nations like Iran and Iraq, have used on their own citizens, on labor union leaders, on students, on politicians. And now we're beginning to use torture techniques on American citizens. Private Bradley Manning was arrested and charged with passing top-secret American diplomatic cables to WikiLeaks. You've heard about the WikiLeaks scandal, have you? Maybe you've read some of the cables. I have. It's been a very interesting story. Well, this was a terrific embarrassment to the American government, and so for seven months, Private Manning has been held without bail in solitary confinement 23 hours per day. No human contact allowed. Solitary confinement, brothers and sisters, is a form of torture. It breaks down your mind. It destroys your personality. Private Manning is now being administered heavy antidepressants in the hopes of avoiding a suicide. By the time he stands trial, it is doubtful that Private Manning will be in his right mind, that he will be mentally stable. Now, it's entirely possible that uh, our authorities have the right guy, that, uh, that he deserved to be arrested, that he deserves a trial, he certainly deserves a fair trial, and he may indeed deserve a long prison term for, uh, for what he did in, if, if indeed he's the one who sent all of this uh, uh, secret information to WikiLeaks. But he has rights as an American citizen, as a human being, to be treated as innocent until proven guilty, and to avoid cruel and inhuman punishment. But you see, our nation has long ago begun speaking as a dragon and trampling on our Constitution 
and our basic rights as Americans. It strikes me that we got to the point that we would tell the world that torture was legal because we had been doing it for so long that we became immune to the horrific moral nature of the act. It's a long and steady descent into the moral abyss, brothers and sisters, and we're well on the way. Now, we imagine that the three unclean spirits, like frogs, work their deceptive magic in the future. But the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have been sowing the seeds of rebellion against God for a very long time. Now, I don't think that it is only our liberties that may be compared to frogs in a kettle. I think we Seventh-day Adventists may ourselves be like the frogs in the kettle. The heat of satanic deception and rebellion is being turned up, but we've been blind. We're losing our, our liberties and we're losing our opportunities to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, waiting for some earth-shattering experience to wake us up, something that may never come. And so we're swimming around as the water heats up and not even realize how our own spiritual life is being cooked. Well, I have, um, I'm looking at the clock and we have some time this afternoon. I'd like to discuss this afternoon some of our liberties that are being cooked in the kettle, so to speak. But I'd like to take just a minute this morning to leave you with a second image that describes the state of our religious freedom. Our liberties as a whole may be compared with frogs in a kettle, but I have another image uh, to describe the state of religious liberty in America, and this one is, is borrowed from our popular culture from the Roadrunner cartoon. Uh, I trust that we've all seen at some time in our life We've seen the roadrunner being chased by Wiley Coyote. And maybe you remember like I do that, that scene where the coyote stops, I'm sorry, where, uh, where the roadrunner stops at the edge of the cliff. And the coyote goes sailing on past him right out over the edge of the cliff and his little legs are spinning real fast. And he keeps going and going, and then there's that pause. And he looks down, and he realizes where he is, that he's hanging out over nothing, and there's that split second before he falls down into the abyss. You, is there anybody who hasn't seen that? You don't have that, that image in your mind? Where we are with religious liberty, folks, is like that coyote that's gone sailing out over the edge of the cliff. We're hanging out over thin air. The constitutional 
the legal foundations have already been eroded. We just don't realize it. And as a society, we haven't fallen into the abyss yet. It was in 1990, 21 years ago, that the Supreme Court stated that our religious liberty is a luxury that a well-ordered society can no longer afford. That's not my words, brothers and sisters. That's right from the pages of a Supreme Court opinion in the infamous peyote case. Religious liberty is a luxury that a well-ordered society can no longer afford. Last year, there was a very startling case that went to the United States Supreme Court. I'm going to give you a snapshot right now. We can fill you in on some more of the details this afternoon. It involved a student Christian club, the University of Hastings Law School. In that case, the Supreme Court upheld the decision by the law school to deny the Christian student group formal recognition because it was held to violate the university's non-discrimination policies. Did you get that? A Christian club was held to violate the university's non-discrimination policies. Why? Because, surprise, it required members to be Christian. It was okay for La Raza, the Hispanic student group, to require members to be of Latino origin. Nobody was coming down on them. But it was not okay for the Christian club to want to be a club for Christians. So it's now illegal, according to the Supreme Court. It's discriminatory to have a Christian club to be a Christian organization, the implications of this decision are truly startling, and we can discuss them this afternoon after, after lunch. As we conclude, friends, it strikes me that we are sleeping while we are losing our liberties little by little, every day, every week, every month, every year, we're losing more of our liberties, like frogs in a kettle. Seventh-day Adventists are called to warn the world about the destruction of our liberties. I singled out, you know, just a, a snapshot of, of ways that our nation has spoken like a dragon. I'm sure there are other examples that will come to your mind, and there's so many that we could talk about. But we as Adventists are called and, and, and everyone, we're called to preserve the rights of conscience. Christ does not compel anyone to believe or to worship. It's the beast speaking as a dragon that will compel worship. We're called to champion religious freedom for everyone, to warn that the judgments of God will destroy the civilization that destroys religious freedom. Isn't that right? It's the destruction of freedom and the counterfeiting of, of God and, and demanding the worship that belongs to God alone in, in destruction of, of freedom 
that will call down the judgments of God. So where does that leave us? Is there something that we can do? Is there a call to action here? There's certainly a call to spiritual revival and reformation and recovery of our prophetic insight and of our prophetic mission, isn't there, brothers and sisters? Now's when I really want to hear the amen. On, on a, on a uh, kind of a pragmatic basis, you know, next week the church will take up the religious liberty offering. And I'm very grateful. This church has been very supportive. But if you look uh, throughout the country and, and here in the West, even though religious liberty is the, the largest annual offering uh, within, uh, within the church as a whole, we raise nearly a million dollars a year for religious liberty, it comes out to less than a dollar per church member. And when you think about how much we say we value our liberty, it would seem that we need to maybe put our money where our mouth is. And um, we could do a little bit better, do you think, than about a dollar per member for the cause of defending and preserving our freedoms? Um, you know, the offerings are used to send Liberty Magazine to the leaders of our nation. We want to shape and encourage the values of religious freedom among those who make the policies and who write the news and who, who, who shape public opinion. And Liberty Magazine is widely read and it's appreciated. It's a, it's a superb magazine. Uh, we also use some of those offering funds to provide lawyers for our members who get fired over the Sabbath. Uh, and to support other programs, which we'll talk about this afternoon. And, uh, and one of those things that, that I need to remind you of is our oldest, uh, the nation's oldest religious liberty organization, the uh, North American Religious Liberty Association, and your opportunity to actually be part of the work of preserving and, our, and, and defending our liberties here in America by becoming a member. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that and we'll have some brochures for you this afternoon. It's time for us to recover, brothers and sisters, to recover our identity. We're not just another Christian denomination. We're not just a bunch uh, who, who worship on a different day. God has called us for a purpose. And in order to fulfill that purpose, we need to have hearts filled with the love and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when it comes down to it all, we can't do anything of our own selves, Lord, unless we have Christ in our hearts. We can't serve you, we can't be saved, we can't be at peace, we can't be secure in the knowledge of our salvation without Christ in our hearts. We can't be free of the guilt that plagues so many of us and the regrets unless we have Christ in our hearts. And we certainly can't carry out the work of preparing this world for the coming of Christ unless, Lord, you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit and bring Christ to be a living, breathing reality in our hearts. 
That's what we're praying for, Lord. That's what we're seeking. Some of us may have been coming to church for years and yet feel a void deep down inside. And there may be some who are visiting or who've just started coming and are seeking for that intimate relationship with Christ, who don't even know what they're missing. And yet we want to open our hearts to you. Young and old, Lord, we want to invite Jesus in today. We ask in his precious name. Amen.